Hello, Health Equity Squad. I hope you've been well. Welcome to Practicing Health Equity. I am your host and guide, Matt Kastner. In this season of Practicing Health Equity, we are exploring the question, why should we care about health equity? A journey I am calling the headwaters. The headwaters are the land where a river starts, and this question is where this podcast starts. So with that, let's begin. Today, we're going to talk about standards. It's important to have standards both in love and in life. So what are standards? Standards are essentially any convention that facilitates use. So if you want to plug in your Encanto-themed karaoke machine, you can do that anywhere in America because every outlet follows the National Electrical Manufacturers Association standard. Standards are great unless they're not standard. To illustrate that idea, we'll start with one of my favorite web comics, XKCD, a web comic of romance, sarcasm, math, and language. It's XKCD number 927 if you want to look it up online, but I will narrate the comic here. The title of this one is How Standards Proliferate. In the first panel, we see the text, there are 14 competing standards. In the second panel, Q-Ball, one of the main characters of the comic, says, 14? Ridiculous. We need to develop one universal standard that covers everyone's use case. Another character called Ponytail says, yeah. The third and final panel says there are 15 competing standards. Moving on, language is perhaps the most widely used standard. A shared understanding of what words mean allows us to communicate complex feeling, allows the writing of powerful prose and also dirty limericks. So if we care so much about health equity, let's start by unpacking what health is. To do that, we're going to revisit our friend, Dr. Nick King, whom we met in the last episode. Later, we'll also be talking to Dr. Yukiko Asada. This should be pretty simple, right? Anyways, hi, Nick. Hi, my name is Nick King. I'm an associate professor at McGill University, where I hold appointments in the Department of Ethics, Equity, and Policy and Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health in the School of Population and Global Health and in the Max Bell School of Public Policy. So, Nick, what is health? Yeah, I'm so glad you're starting with this question because I think every discussion of public health and health equity uh, should should start with this question. I teach a course on public health ethics and policy, primarily to masters of public health students. And this is the first question. I say, what is health? And I ask them. And I sort of do it in a cheeky way. I say, well, you're all studying. You're all in your you know, 15th or 16th year of school studying public health. So I imagine you all have very, you've thought deeply about this. And you know, most haven't. Uh, and I think that's important. Because if we are orienting so many interventions, uh, bureaucratic structures, educational programs around something called health, we should understand what it is and why that's important. What is becoming clear is is that our definition of health combines normative aspects of like the way we think the world should be, descriptive elements, the way it is, and aspirational elements, where we wanna go. When I ask my students, how do you define health? The majority of them, they say, some version of it's a state of total mental, physical, and social well-being, which I'm sure you recognize is from the WHO. And then I say, okay, everyone in this classroom who feels that way, raise your hand, and nobody does. Now, it's a, it's, it's a cheeky criticism, but I think it's, just, it's an aspiration, right? 
So it's an aspiration, and that's good. But then we have millions of public health professionals dedicating their careers to measuring it to five decimal points. So it's simultaneously an objective descriptive element and an aspiration. The fact that it can be normative also means that discrimination can be baked into our understandings of health at the outset. In general, over time, and I was originally trained as a historian, unhealthy, the category is more easily mapped onto people and behaviors and exposures that are, con are already considered illegal, abnormal, or bad. And unhealthy is also more easily mapped onto bodies and identities that are marginalized, oppressed, considered abnormal or bad in some way. The Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, very famously, it included, quote, homosexuality, unquote, as a mental illness until 1974. And um, there's a great This American Life podcast on this called 81 Words, where they review it. And they talk about how, yes, people, groups and individuals who are marginalized in other ways, it's very easy to label them as unhealthy. Contemporarily, there's a real debate over um, obesity, right? Is obesity a solid scientific fact that is well demonstrated to be a precursor to many different chronic diseases and therefore telling, encouraging people to lose weight is a good public health intervention? Or is this fat shaming for a group of people who are already discriminated against completely divorced from whether it's unhealthy or not. So this is, this is why I think it's so important that if you're concerned about equity, you should be very concerned about where our definitions of health come from and how that matters. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about how bonkers the World Health Organization definition actually is. Uh, thinking back on it, I'm not sure I've ever met that definition in my life. Um, that's an interesting point that discrimination and these social views can get baked into our idea of what health is. Could you speak to where those definitions come from? You know, the really important thing is who actually defines health today in our society? And I think most of us say, well, health professionals, right? Doctors, uh, public health professionals. And that's true to a certain extent, right? I mean, you know, we have the ICD-10, uh, 10 or 11, right? Which literally is a book that defines health. We have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association that literally defines health. And I think most of us think that's okay with it, although you know, those are not without serious controversies and, and contentions. But who else defines health? Well, drug companies, right? I think you know, most of us are familiar with the fact that we have very, very powerful corporations who have a vested interest in defining health and illness in particular ways. And as many sociologists and anthropologists have pointed out, they also have a vested interest in increasing the number of people who are, quote, unhealthy, because that increases their profits. You know, this is sometimes called diagnosis creep, right? Where, you know, you see it a lot in psychopharmaceuticals, where a psychopharmaceutical like a an SSRI will be approved for one indication. And as it comes to the end of its patent, the company will say, oh, we have more and more indications to apply this to. Well, they're redefining health and illness. Um, 
We also see that with some of the largest classes of drugs, uh, things like statins for cholesterol. Um, my friend and colleague, uh, uh, Jeremy Green, who's at Hopkins, has, has written widely and extensively on this, um, talking about how cholesterol medications, the, the threshold for high cholesterol has continuously decreased over time for a variety of reasons, but increasingly it's so that drug companies can maintain their patents on it. And now we have, you know, unhealthy levels, at-risk levels, they're, you know, borderline at-risk levels. Um, a third group, law enforcement, right? So think of MDMA, right? Ecstasy, right? Or Motley, right? Well, it's an illegal drug. And I think for many in public health, they think, well, you know, overuse of MDMA is a health, is a public health problem. And in many ways it is. There's also some evidence that it can be beneficial in psychotherapy, right? It can help people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think too often we sort of, we, we outsource these definitions to other entities. It's like, well, if law enforcement thinks MDMA is bad, we will import that and we will say use of or overuse of MDA is illegal. I live in Canada right now, which um, just legalized marijuana on a federal level. And I talk to my students about this. I say, look, five years ago when I taught this class, most people would at least publicly say using marijuana too much is a health problem. Now that it's legal, I've literally seen fewer and fewer people say that. And I don't know if that's a social acceptability bias or if that's just what they think. Thanks, Nick. So before that interview, I really thought Nick would just repeat a version of the WHO definition. We'd do a high five, I'd do a sick podcast kickflip, and we'd move on. As a great American philosopher, Avril Levine says, why'd you have to go and make things so complicated? Anyways, we're going to take a slight diversion here in the middle of the episode. We're going to talk about the WHO, or World Health Organization, definition, which Nick talked about. Let's start with what it is. Quote, health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. It was written into the preamble of the WHO Constitution right smack dab at the top, can't miss it. This was written at a time when biological definitions of health were the norm, defining health as the absence of disease. So from that starting point, this was really a significant shift towards a more holistic understanding of what health is. The definition has its roots in the United Nations precursor, the League of Nations, specifically the League of Nations Health Organization, or LNHO. If you remember from your high school world history class, the League of Nations was founded to build a lasting peace after the First World War. So, great job on that, guys. In 1943, in the heat of World War II, the medical director of the LNHO, a Swiss physician named Raymond Gaultier, wrote a covert report entitled, International Health in the Future. The report included the line, For health is more than the absence of illness. The word health implies something positive, namely physical, mental, and moral fitness. This is the goal to be reached. I think in that we can see the basic outlines of the present-day WHO definition. It's not known who wrote that definition into the WHO's preamble and uploaded it to the subconsciousness of every public health student in the world. 
but it is most likely a Yugoslavian, Dr. Andrea Stampar, a visionary public health leader of the first half of the century. He founded a school of public health in his home country, and a statue of him was erected in Morocco for curing malaria. The other individual who might have included it in the preamble is an American, Dr. Thomas Perrin. Perrin is an interesting character. At the time, he was serving his third term as the U.S. Surgeon General and vocally supported the socio-medical perspective embodied by the definition of health articulated in the preamble. Though many expected he would ascend to lead what would come to be called the World Health Organization, his career took a nosedive the same year the WHO formed. Many folks felt this was because of his vocal support for a national health insurance program proffered by President Harry Truman, with strong criticism coming from the American Medical Association, or AMA. As with many public health leaders from this time period, his legacy is a complex one. Though support of a national health insurance program and spearheading the development of the WHO may earn him several public health merit badges, the U.S. Public Health Service, which he oversaw, carried out both the Tuskegee Syphilis Study and the Guatemala Syphilis Experiments. In the former, treatment was withheld from men with syphilis, and in the latter, and this is real bad, American physicians infected 1,300 Guatemalans with syphilis. But now we're getting off track a bit. Probably won't be the last time. To continue understanding the meaning of what health is and how we define it, we'll be talking with Dr. Yukiko Asada. In our conversation, I'll be referring to a book or the book. The book is Health Inequality, Morality, and Measurement. One of the things we'll be talking about is how measuring things forces us to be concrete in the assumptions and beliefs we have. That's why I'm so excited to talk with her about how to define health. Hi, Yukiko. Hi, my name is Yukiko Asada. I'm an investigator in the Department of Bioethics at the National Institute of Health Clinical Center. Awesome. And then uh, I'm wondering if maybe you could tell me a story about how you got where you are, how you figured out that whatever you're doing is, is what you want to do. Okay, so I'll go back to high school. In Japan, to become medical doctor, unlike United States, you make the decision when you graduate high school. So you go to med school, and the med school is for six years. So that's what I wanted to do when I was in high school. I wanted to become a medical doctor. And coincidentally, at that time in Japan, there was the first living organ transplant from the father to a baby, his baby, a liver transplant. And then you can check on why the organ transplantation is so controversial in Japan because there was some issue about the brain death many years ago. So it was uh, like broadcasted every day on TV. We'll take a brief diversion here to explain this incident, as it is very similar to a story we'll be telling later in this season. In 1968, the first Japanese heart transplant was performed by Dr. Wada Juro at Sapporo Medical College. He transported the heart of an 18-year-old drowning victim into another young man who would survive for 83 days. After the procedure, a number of problems emerged. Most significantly, there was no legal definition of brain death. Additionally, members of the transplant team were part of the team that declared the patient dead. Dr. Juro was charged with murder for performing this procedure. Though he would eventually be acquitted, organ transplants in the case of brain death were barred until 1999, and then were only allowed under significant scrutiny. The incident Yukiko is referring to occurred in 1989 and was the first liver transplant performed in Japan in 25 years. 
In it, a 21-month-old boy received a segment of his father's liver. So I was watching it, and then, you know, little person I was as a high school student, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so serious. Is it okay to do such a thing? That looks like a, such a high-tech thing that the medicine is walking along without us thinking about what's right and wrong. And then I thought, I want to think about those kind of questions. And then I knew that if I went to medical school, I wouldn't have time to think about such a philosophical question. You just have to learn medicine. So I thought, well, maybe I want to think about it first. And then if I still wanted to become a doctor, I will go to medical school later. So I decided to change to biology. Uh, and that's what I decided to study in the university. And coincidentally, again, I met a professor who came from New Zealand and then doing bioethics. And so um, I took his course. And at that time, I didn't speak English. And he taught in English. So I probably understood only half of it. But then I was fascinated by it. So I wrote a letter to him that I really want to study, but I can't speak. And then he said, that's fine. And then I started to, you know, go to his lab and then I started to talk and practice English and learn. So then I wanted to study this uh, continuously in graduate school. And then I wanted to come to the United States. So I applied on different programs and then I went into University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then I arrived and I, it's a population health program. And I wanted to study bioethics. And then my uh, supervisor, PhD supervisor, uh, Dr. Dan Wickler, who later moved to Harvard, and he's still at Harvard, said that then he's, he's a very prominent bioethicist. And he told me that Yukiko, bedside bioethics is done. All those important questions are kind of, you know, we tried hard and it's done. And then I see the future in population level bioethics. And then there you need to study statistics, epidemiology, health economics, and then all the number stuff. And then there are a lot of interesting ethical issues. And that's your future. And he's really good at inspiring people like that. So I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. So then I, I thought, and then that's what I want to do. And then again, coincidentally, I went to the World Health Organization as an intern in January 2000. And at that time, World Health Organization was making a World Health Report um, that they publish every year. One of them was very important, uh, health inequality assessment. And then I got interested in, and that became my dissertation topic. And it was so interesting that then I've been doing the same thing for the past like 20 years. So it's a long, but in it, I could say to anyone that then it, you just have to keep going and you you know, things happen to you and then you kind of take the best out of it and um, that becomes your life. Yeah, it sounds like it must have been a very exciting journey, uh, I mean, to, to, to have done all of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we'll get to this a bit later, but it sounds like that, that internship was sort of a front row seat to an, an interesting scenario you were probably very qualified to consider because it's kind of the overlap of, of ethics and statistics, right? Yeah. Okay, so we'll come back to that. But I think the, the first question I had is sort of like, why why do people care about health or why is health something that's important? Yeah, so um, typically you can think about two ways why health is important. 
One is that、um, it's important for its own sake, so like a intrinsic value. Being healthy, it just feels good. And then other is because health is important for other things we care about. So it's and sometimes we say instrumentally important. So you can think about if if you're healthy, you can do things. You can do something you want to do. You can go out. You can play sports. You can you can pursue your career. You can study, or if you don't like to study, you can goof around. But if you're sick, you can't do. And if you're dead, you don't exist. So being healthy is just so useful to get to what you want to do. So those are two important things people mention often. And then in.、Uh... I know in the book you mention a bunch of different definitions. I I don't know that you know I necessarily want to quiz you on all of them,、mm-hmm. but I, I'm I'm wondering <laughs> please if please don't please don't, don't. okay. <laughs>、um, what did you say on page seventy three?、Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know.、Um, I I'm I'm wondering if you could sort of talk through sort of like what does that continuum of health definitions look like? What are the you know、yeah. what are kind of the knobs that get tweaked there? Yeah, so health is not often talked about continuum, as you said. One is that the very medical conception, which is health is the absence of disease. So if you're not having any disease, you know that that's the health. And the other end is the WHO definition, which is health is everything. It's like、uh, being healthy and then being feeling good, and it's all like a life. So it's a huge continuum. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, like in in your experience, is that a good thing or a bad thing that there's like a wide range? So, like, if I'm talking about like you know measuring something in physics, I can say like I can measure the weight to like. You know, a, a a millionth of a decimal point, you know, in grams or something. But like for for health, if if we can't agree if it's you know this definition or that definition, like is that like does that raise a problem or that is just you know kind of the right way to think about such a complex thing as health? Yeah, it's a good question. So I answer in a different ways. So one is that you know all those big concept like what is freedom or what is justice. And you know you don't agree. If you agree with one thing, it's almost like a dictatorship. Like you don't want have that. So I think it's very healthy. And healthy is one of those kind of interesting thing that then we have different views. So I think on the one hand, it's just makes sense and healthy to have that conversation ongoing. So it's. We cannot agree is not a bad news there, but as you mentioned, when we start to try to measure, and then somebody is measuring in one way, other person is measuring different way, and we compare results. Well, we the results are different. Of course, it's different because we are measuring different things. So, for example, like a sum of the measurement of health、uh, include like, do you have a lot of friends and you are not lonely? And then some people say, "Well, is it health, or is it like more social function?" And then WHO definition kind of include that as a health, but then 
the question becomes like, well, it's one thing to include that, but then according to that measurement, if somebody is not healthy, how to address that? It becomes like quite unclear who is responsible for what, especially the way we are organizing our society now. It's a big debate of the where the health is. And my personal view is that I don't want to go too far like the virtual definition, but not the medical one. So somewhere in between. And there is something like people seem to have a very strong view about health. I think it's because we know what it is to be sick or what it is to look after somebody who is injured or sick. So everybody has a very strong personal views or feelings about health. So singling out health, separating health from other things may not be always a bad idea. We can have some conversation there. So somewhere in between. Yeah, I think I think it can really be hard to kind of, you know, draw the lines around sort of where does it stop? Where mm-hmm. does it start? Like with the, yeah. you know, with the issue of, you know, how many friends do you have? Like maybe that doesn't, you know, on its face seem, you know, a, a traditional definition of health. But like, I think there's a lot of literature around sort of like social connections and social capital can be really, mm-hmm. you know, helpful, particularly in older age. Uh, so that's a, it's a lot of, a lot of fuzziness, I guess. Yeah. So, so moving ahead, I think kind of a, a, it's certainly a naive perspective, but I think it's a somewhat common one that sort of, if you're measuring something and there's math involved there, that it is objective and it is, it is true. But getting to the point of having a number about something, there are a lot of, a lot of decisions and a lot of, a lot of things that go into, to that strategy. So I'm wondering if you could talk through sort of like, why is it important in the context of, of measurement strategy or statistical analysis to sort of think about these, these uh, moral issues? I think you're right that many people think that as soon as it becomes a number, it's kind of objective and it's the fact. But it's not always the case. So if we are measuring like how tall those trees are in a forest and how dense it is, you know, those are physical things that you can make mistakes, but if you are careful, probably many people agree that then you can do the measurement. And there's not so much about judgment going in, but when you're trying to measure like inequality or the inequity. So I'm here using the term inequality as like a differences and inequity is more like morally, ethically problematic differences. Then it's like what to measure is becoming quite the calling our judgment. The judgment first comes in what is health? You know, do you consider that in your social network, um, how lonely you are and all those things, is it health or not? And that's the judgment you have to make. And then depending on that, your number um, based on that measurement would be different. And that inequality or inequity part is also quite complex. So here, um, philosopher in the University of uh, Rutgers, uh, Larry Tamikin has a very interesting book called Inequality. 
and then he talks about how complex that thinking is actually where we make a judgment of one situation is better than the other in terms of inequality so for example like what's the comparison here are we comparing the worst off to the best off or are we comparing the next worst off you know everybody in the population or are we comparing to on average um in this society people live to 76 for example and then mine is like uh, i'm expected to live 68 and it's bad so it's the comparing to the average so in what way we compare and it's kind of really basic when you think about inequality and fairness and then it matters and then that comes into the number so the those numbers measurement is uh, looking very you know objective but it actually has a lot of assumptions in it and those assumptions are because we are talking about something we care about socially and morally ethically those numbers kind of represent our views and the problem is that the people don't notice usually so much and um, they just do it because it's a mathematical exercise but and even if you don't realize explicitly you're making some assumptions and that means that then you're already buying into certain view and isn't it better that then you're clear about what you believe in yeah so i i think the 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 story you reference in the book about the 2000 WHO health health inequity report is is kind of a living example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could sort of like talk through, you know, from 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 soup to nuts, sort of what what was that report and sort of what what were the methods and sort of how how do those relate to, you know, concepts of equity and fairness. Um. So. Most of the epidemiologists and the public health people, when they think about health inequality and health disparities, they always look at health by something socially important. So health by race, health by income, health by education, health by gender. And so what you're doing is that you essentially compare average health of rich people, average health of poor people, and how that compares. So that's basically, you know, epidemiologists and public health people think about. But that's not the only way you can think about health inequality. And so the Chris Mary's group, WHO report, said that we'll do it differently. So differently is that they're just looking at the distribution of health across individuals. So here we don't care what kind of characteristics or groups you are associated with, but we just line them up and look at how healthy and how not healthy they are. And then this is very similar to when we look at them like the income inequality. You know, probably you've heard income inequality in different countries and then we compare Gini coefficient and how the distribution is more spread or not and da 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 da. So it's similar idea, just nothing wrong about looking at just health and how that is distributed. And they said that, well, narrow distribution, meaning that, you know, healthy people and not healthy people, not that different, but they're close together. That's probably better. 
So that's how they did it. And then it had a lot of backlash. So the public health people and、uh, epidemiologists complained fiercely, saying that if we don't include the dimension of those social groups, it's useless. We're not looking at anything important. It's just almost looking at how tall and short the trees are, and we just lost the sight. So that became a, quite a controversial、uh, issue. And how that played out is that way of measuring individual inequality in health didn't stick in the literature. So the public health and epidemiologists and just continue to measure on health by something. So I guess a couple questions on that. I'm, I'm wondering if you could clarify sort of like why, why, why did.、Uh, Murray and, and his folks, why did they sort of take this radically different approach to, to measurement? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons they stated. First, when you look at the social groups, usually you just look at the one social groups at a time. And then, so like looking at health by income, health by education, and then it's just a one picture of health inequalities or disparities. So it's not the overall picture. And then also, like those group measurement is always different. So you cannot easily compare. So they were their interest of the international comparison of different countries, how much inequality is in there. It's actually quite good. You can compare inequality without worrying about those issues because you're just looking at the distribution of health. And then if you measure health in the same way, And then you can see the distribution, and you are not、um, introducing some other headache of, oh, how to measure education, oh, how to measure income. Does it mean the same thing in different countries? So you don't need to do that. So I think, kind of a, a, a related question, I think I, I'm kind of struggling with like how to even think about measurement at an individual level. Okay. So, like, in, you know, in my training, You know, you, you get data, you kind of stratify it by income or by race or education or whatever. You kind of look and see where, you know, where does the prevalence,、mm -hmm. you know, is prevalence high in this population and not that population? And then that sort of leads to some sort of program, you know. So maybe as a result of the analysis, you're reaching out to this racial group, this,、mm -hmm. you know, education group, and you can kind of go from there.、Mm -hmm. In your understanding, like how, how, would, how would one sort of think about acting on measurement done at an individual level? Yeah. So, the, what it means to measure individual level is that, and so you have to think about health as a continuous variable. The easiest way is like you can say that life years lived. So, what age you died, right? And then that's like a zero to whatever, 100, 120. And every individual in your data have those numbers. So you can look at the distribution of it. You can plot them or you can look at standard deviation or variance and some summary measure of how spread that then a distribution is. But then your point of like how to move from that to policy intervention is a problem. So usually that itself wouldn't call for particular policy intervention. And who to intervene, you need to do the second analysis. Who are they? And then also, like,、uh, why? What kind of factors explain? But then, beauty here is that then, because you're not starting from 
race or education or income. And if you have data of individual that in all those characteristics, you could look at which one is most important and then you can look at them all together. So yes, you need to do the secondary analysis of the second step to do the, um, some, you know, moving to the policy intervention. So, so to maybe paraphrase my understanding from like the, mm-hmm. the, the way it might have worked is the, the WHO would have looked at all these, you know, life year curves mm-hmm. and they would have seen, you know, for, you know, for country A, it's really smushed together. So we think mm-hmm. there's very little inequality here. But for this other country, it's spread really far apart. Yeah. So that's a lot of inequality. And, and we would want to maybe ask some follow-up questions about what what yeah. is happening there and are, are there any programs or policies yeah. that would be appropriate. Exactly. But and it's also important thing to know is that um, what do you mean by healthy as a population? So, you know, when you, you alone, <laughs> what is your health, it's easier to say that you, know, you live long and live well. But when you look at population, there are many people in there. So you can talk in two ways. One is on average or overall, how good the population is. So like life expectancy, we compare all the time to different countries. But then that is one number from one population. And we know that not everybody is having that number. So there's some underlying distribution the second one is a fair distribution of health. So when you think about what is a healthy population is that good overall health and narrow distribution, fair distribution of health. And when you think about that way, that itself is like a kind of foundational statistics for the, you know, you need to compare and you want to compare who, which population is doing well. And then, as you said, yes, why? You know, some population might be really having high overall, but a horrible distribution or vice versa. So why? So that's the becoming an interesting question. One of the other things that I had kind of taken for granted was that measuring population health as like a mean was like completely fine and there were no trade-offs. Um, and it wasn't really until starting this podcast project that I understood that there's, that is not, uh, necessarily how things are. So I'm wondering if you could sort of talk through sort of what are, you know, what what are the trade-offs involved with thinking about health, you know, at, at, at a mean level? So um, first, you have to kind of agree that when we say what is a healthy population, that is, you need to look at two things, mean and distribution. So if you don't agree with that, or I just care about mean, I think that's wrong. But if you think that way, this conversation doesn't go anywhere. So the, if you think that the both mean and distribution are important, then you have to look at them both. And there might be some situation that you could improve the mean overall. But then you are doing horribly for the distribution. So improve the mean, maybe if you put a lot of resources for already healthy people and they might jack up the mean, but then you leave behind those unhealthy people. Or even worse, you can kill them off. 
and they don't show up in your cross-sectional data. And that's one thing that I really think is not right, is that you know, when we talk about health inequality, we only look at the health inequality of the living people. Once you're dead, you're not even showing up in the statistics. That sounds like an important point. Can yes. you say more about that? Yeah, so the, we, of course, we have a mortality data, you know, but you know, oftentimes that's separate. So we say this many people died this year. And among the living, this is a distribution, you know, but and I think those things should be the same. So in some measures, you can put the dead people at zero and really healthy people to one. And then there's a continuum. And then you can see that, you know, actually, if we think that then death is the one type of a health outcome, then they should be there. So. Anyways, you can look at the distribution and then you could make a choice of like a one intervention, how much good it does to improve the mean and reducing inequality. And then I don't think that the other interventions do both equally. Then you have to make a, you, I mean, collectively as a society, we need to make a decision how much we care about inequality. Some might say we don't care so much and we just want to have a good overall mean. And others might say, well, we don't care so much about the mean. We want to really reduce the disparities there. And that becomes again a choice, collective societal choice that requires a lot of conversation in society. Yeah. So I think I think part of that goes back to sort of like what what is the social conception of health and sort of where does that place, you know, among other issues. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering sort of like how in 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 your career, I guess, since since 2000, how have you seen that change or shift at all? Or you feel like it's, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like that might be a hard thing to pin down even in the first place. Yeah. So the I think people do start to talk about distribution more. And then this COVID made it so clear that health inequality, health disparities are in front of us. And something like this historic pandemic happens. It's just so clear that it's not good. Myself, I started to think that um, eventually it's the societal choice of the how much you care about inequality and uh, what we want to prioritize. And um, if you study philosophy or you, you ask those you know super smart philosophers, there is the right answer of that balance, but they never agree. They have different views and it's interesting, but they're not very helpful to say, this is it you should do. So. I started to think it's not quite right to assume that there's the answer, the right answer waiting to be discovered. But maybe the right answer is more dynamic and fluid, that's context specific, place specific, and it's something we need to collectively kind of explore and agree on. So, so because of that, I started to think more about how can I talk to people? like a people here is not academic, but in a normal people. 
and then get them involved in the discussion. And here I'm talking about not just grabbing people from the street and ask them because I want people to think hard. And after they thought hard about it, then I want to know what they think. So I, in health research, we ask the public a lot of questions, but oftentimes it's like opinion surveys or just get together and then, you know, asking focus groups. And I wanted to have a bit more than that. So I, I developed a method called a fairness dialogues. So that's where like getting people, normal, regular people together and then talk about those and the fairness issues and then um, listen to what they think and hopefully that kind of filled the void of uh, we need a general public's views but they need to develop the capacity to talk about such a difficult issues and especially now it's not an easy time to talk about difficult issues not just health but in you know politically and how we are going through in a society so it's a kind of ambitious um, plan, but and that's uh, um, that's my evolution of how I think about this issue. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, like, what what happens within a, a fairness dialogue? Um, so the, it's basically the way it had been developed, and then we are now kind of retweaking, and this may not be the model in future. It's developed in Nova Scotia, which is the eastern province uh, of Canada and in a fairly small province of about 1 million people. And then there we said that, okay, just imagine, here's the town called Troutville. And then this is the town, typical mid-sized town, somewhere in Nova Scotia. And you and your family living there. And then we'll show you some scenarios and we ask you questions. And let's talk about it. So that's the general structure. And then somehow this, uh, Troutville idea, I think what happened was that the people can leave the baggage of the real life. So something they carry and worry about, they're free from it. But it's not like a happening in Mars, which, you know, alien lives and you don't care whatever happens. So it's not a scientific fiction. So people sort of said, this is the kind of Troutville I want to live. So people start to talk about like a, it's a nice a little space of the imagination and then at the same time still anchored in the um, the time. So, for example, we found a very interesting things that people did talk about like kind of personal responsibility for health and, you know, they sometimes somebody is unhealthy because of what they did and they think that it's okay to think that way. But when we try to allocate healthcare resources, they totally disagree. They say that, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. Even if somebody is not sensible, we look after each other. And so they, that's uh, in the literature, we don't see that. It's, uh, you know, your view about personal responsibility for health would directly dictate your view about resource allocation. But in, a, in our study, people are totally different about the healthcare allocation is one thing and then other is their personal responsibility. So I found that quite fascinating that then people think hard and they're engaged and I think that's what we need. I guess the question is then how how do we how do we live in Troutville, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. But and I think and it's just even now maybe we have not had that opportunity so much. Like and we talk about it. You know, we have to ask people, and they need to be involved. But maybe we're not doing the right thing. So, so in the in the context of the podcast, I am like, I will have an episode about like here. Here's John Rawls. Here's what John Rawls said. Here's what you know Amartya Sen、mm-hmm. said about the capabilities approach and kind of、mm-hmm. these different perspectives. I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out sort of like what is like right. What is the right way to think about that? Is it like I you know. I, I take a look at myself, and I decide I I have a Rawlsian view of justice, and then I should, you know, I should always measure things this、mm-hmm. way, and I should do my policies always this way. Like, is it is it right to think about it like I'm picking my favorite sports team, and I'm going to be a fan of the Baltimore Orioles forever?、Mm-hmm. How how should we think about like those those philosophical orientations as a start? So that's a good question, and then my. Mission in my work is that then people become transparent about their choice. So right now, people don't think about it even, and people just do like a people. I mean, those quantitative analysts, you know. And then the problem is that the quantitative analysts don't even notice that they're doing some ethical choice making, and philosophers. Know the ethical issues, but then they don't see the numbers. It's like、uh, you know where the ethics. They don't see the connection. So I I think it's so important that those people who use the numbers and create those information about the、uh, how much inequality exists and how bad and making progress or not, and、um, they should know what they're doing. So so that's the that's the most important thing for me. And then I I do have my kind of favorite view, but it really doesn't matter what is my favorite. It's almost like a, it's nice for you to know what flavor of ice cream I like, but that's it. Like it it shouldn't really decide how the society should go because it's just my view. So then, as a society, which want to choose. Coming down to that fairness dialogue kind of idea, that then well we have to kind of agree on what it is. For the meantime, when we don't know, I still think that it's quite useful to give information. If you take this view, this is the result we get. If you take that view, this is the result we take. Thanks, Yukiko. So, what do we take away from that? I think Yukiko confirmed the way that we define health basically follows a continuum between a strict biological definition and a comprehensive "throw everything in the pot" definition. And in addition to defining what health even is, there are a basket of assumptions that go into any effort to measure it. So it's moving targets all the way down, I guess. One thing this conversation really clarified for me was that the distribution or spread or standard deviation of a data set. Very literally describes the inequity within that population. This might sound obvious, but I'd never plug those two things together. The last thing from that conversation that I would pick up here is the piece about how we should consider a diversity of philosophical orientations or our favorite ice cream flavors. I think Yukiko's main message was that there is not a single philosophy that has all the answers when it comes to the issue of inequity, and that social deliberation is a critical part of the process.
When I first started this podcast, I thought I would find one philosophy to rule them all, and this would turn into an exercise in persuading folks to that point of view. What it has turned into is a broad exploration of different philosophies and religions. If Yukiko is right, and I think she is, perhaps the first step in moving to Troutville is in an understanding of these different moral viewpoints without falling into some kind of morally relativistic black hole in which we throw up our hands and give up on a moral pursuit of equity. So how do we walk this fine line? There are two parts to this. The first part is trying to explain the ethical frameworks that have something to say about health equity. The second part of this will be to highlight which parts of these ethical frameworks support a robust conception of equity. I'll explain both of these in a little more detail, starting with the first part. Over the next episodes, I'll be trying to present a positive view of each moral framework and clarify what health justice looks like from that point of view. To help me in this effort, I have developed a very real, not fake machine called the Oversimplicator. The Oversimplicator is built using only the finest, most cutting-edge vacuum tube technology. Using just these three dials here, we can oversimplify, which believe it or not is where it gets its name, any philosophical framework. The three dials are do, what, and who. The do knob lets us set up if we are maximizing something, or minimizing something, or trying to equalize something. The what knob lets us set what we are maximizing, whether that's happiness, or freedom, or the Taylor Swift albums. And the last knob is who, which tells us who we are concerned about. To illustrate how this very real machine works, I'm going to set the do knob to maximize, the what knob to hot dogs, and the who knob to group, a moral theory I will name Frankenfurtism. And when I hit the calculate button, the moral terraforming technology within the machine will create a parallel reality based on pure Frankenfurtism. So if we look through this display window here, we can see what the world looks like, and we can print out what conception of health justice emerges in this world. So let's hit the button and see what happens. Beep, 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 beep. Maximize hot dog. Hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog. Okay, wow. So the first thing I'm getting here is the overwhelming smell of warm, wet meat. Just, just wow. I think I need to sit down for a second here. Okay, so let me get closer to the window. So society has dedicated itself to producing and consuming as many hot dogs as possible. Hot dog carts have taken over the urban environment. Baby formula is now hot dog flavored. And the GDP has been replaced by the GHDP or gross hot dog product. However, because we've set our who knob to group, not everyone has equal access to hot dogs in this world. So we just want as many hot dogs as possible, without respect to who has them. So as a result, Joey Chestnut, who has 16 wins at the Nathan's Famous 4th of July International Hot Dog Eating Contest in our reality, has become a spiritual, cultural, and athletic superstar in a Frankenfurtist world. Oh, in, in fact, here he comes now. I think he's about to get introduced. 15,000 generations of humanity, yet we have evolved not at all. Bound like animals to the laws of physics, shamed before the universe. And in all of history, only one man has stood to say that he will dictate what is and is not possible in this world. I speak of this man. 
But believe it or not, a world based solely on eating as many hot dogs as you can carries some health consequences. Namely, radical increases in the incidence of heart disease, cancer, and nutritional deficiencies. Okay, and now I'm just going to step away from the window and let's see what a Frankenfurtist conception of health justice is. A Frankenfurtist conception of health justice focuses on who should have access to statins, cancer screenings, and vitamins. In this Frankenfurtist reality, healthcare resources will be preferentially given to those who are able to eat the most hot dogs in the future in a Herculean effort to keep them just healthy enough to keep eating heroic numbers of hot dogs. Those people who do not like hot dogs or who suffer from hot dog independent health conditions may have trouble meeting their healthcare needs in this world. Wow, I smell like I need to wash my clothes and have a shower after that. Thank you for indulging my hot dog fever dream. We'll take a break and be right back. So each of the philosophies we'll create with the oversimplicator is the result of more than 2,000 years of human deliberation. The fact that we haven't reached a consensus after all that time suggests that there can't be a single answer to the complex questions that philosophy tries to address. Every person has a different moral point of view, and no amount of persuasion or coercion can change that. And, given our brief time in a pure Frankenfurtist reality, I think any pure moral reality is probably not a desirable outcome in the first place. We live in a pluralist, diverse reality, and that's a good, if complicated, thing. In each of the upcoming episodes, we'll be talking with one or more experts to try to get a positive view of each philosophy. What I mean by a positive view is this. Much of the philosophical discourse seems to focus on critiquing or pointing out the limitations of other philosophical approaches. This is a valuable exercise, but my goal in these conversations is to focus on explaining what each philosophy is, not why it is right per se. What I will be trying to do in the conversations is to highlight the aspects of each philosophy that contribute to a robust, practical conception of health equity. Some of these ideas will be obvious, some of them will contradict each other. The broader point of this podcast is that health equity is contextual, and that determining what justice requires in a pluralist, non-Frankenfurtist reality depends on the particulars of a situation. My hope is that by clearly tracing these concepts across moral frameworks in this podcast, that you will be better able to recognize and weigh these trade-offs, because you're doing it unconsciously already. At the end of each episode, I'll be talking through what components of each philosophy I think fit within a robust, practical conception of health equity. This reflects only my perspective as a novice in the field of philosophy or religion or evolutionary biology, so you may disagree or take your own lessons from these conversations, and I encourage you to chime in on any of our social media platforms. So that's it. Join the conversation on Twitter at Practice Inequity. That's Practice In without the G, because we like to keep it casual. And subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question, comment, or correction for me, email practicinghealthequity at gmail.com. Last but not least, tell all your public health nerd friends to tune in and subscribe. Take care. Next time, we'll pick things up with a discussion of utilitarianism. And here's a brief preview. Part of my mission in life is to, to make Jeremy Bentham into a gay icon.